The following podcast was produced by Latter-day Radio, originally broadcast on KLO in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information, visit latterdayradio.com. We're back here on Latter-day Radio on 1430 KLO World Class Talk with our last hour discussing a very interesting and sometimes controversial subject, that of intelligent design, Darwinian evolution, and uh, God's role in his hand in helping us enjoy our our mortal lives here on the earth. Uh, We have a new guest, uh, Dr. Ann Gager, from recently moved to uh, Iowa. Ann, are you there? Yes, I am. Well, fantastic. Uh, I don't know if you heard much about what we talked with uh, John last hour. Hopefully the streaming works in Iowa as well as it does here. Um, my, my only thought, I've driven through Iowa once, and my favorite show is, has been uh, Field of Dreams, where uh-huh. we're informed that, it, this no, this isn't heaven, this is just Iowa. So I, I yeah, hope that Iowa. you're having that kind of an experience there. So, uh yeah. Uh, Martin has looked up your resume, and it's pages long. Very impressive. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for being with us. I'm very glad to be here. Thanks. For our listeners, uh, Ann Gager, who is our guest this hour, uh, Dr. Ann Gager, is Director of Science Communication and a Senior Fellow at Discovery Institute. She has a bachelor's degree from NIT, which is already impressive, and then a PhD from University of Washington from the Department of Zoology. She's also done uh, postdoctoral work at Harvard, where her work centered on molecular motor kinesin. And as I understand it, and we're going to ask a little bit about this, uh, that the, these are the motor proteins in, in cells that, that move information along from, from place to place and that that has, uh, study of, of that science has impacted and influenced your uh, understanding of the limits of the idea of neo-Darwinism. Mm-hmm. Um, kinesin, like you said, is involved in transporting things around the cell. And it's a little molecule that looks like a walking man. If you've ever seen a video about kinesin, you can go to Discovery Institute um, YouTube site, and there is a video on kinesin. And it literally looks like a little man walking along a roadway carrying a bundle on his back. And um, the, the fact that this his motor exists is um, a sheer wonder. There are lots of motors in the cell, and kinesin is just one of them. And these molecular motors require very strict tolerances, uh, very detailed engineering. And how you would acquire the ability to move like that when um, there's no nothing for natural selection to select until it's all in place. That's the kind of uh, thing that points towards intelligent design. It, it absolutely does. And, and for, for our listeners, this, this is not just a metaphor 
these uh, motor proteins are called motor proteins for the vernacular, you know, to, for people who who um, who are lay people like myself who who read about them. They have power mechanism and it it is a little motor in in a sense and and where could that possibly come from that's the question that you're asking and and the answer is it's not from evolution that that wouldn't work tell our listeners why that is so well in order for anything to walk it has two legs and at the bottom of each leg is a little foot, which sticks to the microtubule. And it's a chemical reaction that causes that sticking. It uses up energy to do the sticking, and then it has to release for the next step. So one foot sticks, the other one swings forward, and then it sticks, and the other one releases, and it swings forward. And you have this cycle going like this. Now, it requires very specific properties of the protein that makes up kinesin for that cycle of binding and release to happen for its interaction with the energy-carrying molecule called ATP. All of that, it has to be very well coordinated so that when one foot sticks, the other one releases, etc. in order for the walking to take place. The other thing is it has to travel in the right direction. It has to go from the inside of the cell out to the periphery of the cell because what it's carrying needs to move in that direction. The third thing is there's a protein that binds to kinesin called the light chain of kinesin. That's what I actually worked on that specifies what cargo kinesin carries. Now, it picks up its cargo, and somehow it knows where to take it. We don't understand that. We don't know how kinesin knows where to take that cargo. I like to think of kinesin as being like the mailman that delivers the mail to the different parts of the cell. Well, there has to be an address for the mailman to know where to go. And you don't know how that works. So The difference is that is the kinesin doesn't misdeliver very often compared with, I, I didn't say that, but... No, no. And there's, there's, you can go on and on. Um, kinesin... When it's carrying a big thing, like a mitochondrion, it's a big organelle, it sometimes gets jammed up in the, the interior of the cell. It's really crowded with lots of different things, and it gets stuck. So what happens? Along comes more kinesin molecules, and they attach, and then they, they rock back and forth, taking turns, until they work it free. Now, how does that kind of thing evolved by random mutation and natural selection, I have no idea. And neither would anybody else, if, if they're honest, because you're talking about something that's obviously completely involuntary. There's, there's not a, a person or animal alive who, who somehow directs that for, um, consciously. N- number two, this is, as you point out, intelligent... Um, uh, motoring, if if you will, I mean they, they go in the right direction for, for a specific purpose, and then if, if there's a problem, they can overcome it with uh, uh, with other like 
proteins, like-minded, I guess you could, you could even say. And how is all of that possible? How could that possibly be true without some kind of intelligence there? Would that be the crux of the question? Yes. Yeah, um, it gets even more complicated. There are different kinds of casein that we now know, and they each have specific functions in the cell. There are casein's devoted to carrying uh, proteins or, or vesicles down axons and neurons. Axons can stretch for quite a distance from the spinal cord down to your toes, for example, and you have to have some way of getting the chemicals your, your neurons need from the place where they're made all the way down to the tips of the axons. Kinesin does that job. And so we wouldn't be able to function without these right kinds of kinesin. Um, now, the scientists will say, well, we find simpler versions of kinesin in simpler organisms. But I don't think that solves the problem of where the information came to make any sort of kinesin at all. I don't know of any kinesins in bacteria, for example. So when we jump from bacteria to organisms like us that have nuclei, the kinesins seem to appear um, de novo, out of, out of nothing. And so the question is, how do you get something as complex as that? Uh, from nothing uh, by natural selection and random mutation. So he said it, that, uh, that. Go ahead. Sorry. No, you're you're fine. He said that. Um, Kinesin contributed to my uh, interest in intelligent design. You, you know, the thing that was actually most influential was the Cambrian explosion. I was just, that's, it's fascinating that you would bring that up because that seems to be sort of a, a macro version of, of what you're talking about here. You know, poof, everything comes out of, you used de novo, um, out of nothing. And, and the same thing seems to be happening with, with the kinesin um, at, at a small, small micro level. Yes. Yeah. Well, the thing that's fascinating is Darwin's idea from the beginning was that um, with small beginnings over time, with slight modifications, we could evolve everything that is. But if you start small with just a few kinds of things, and then you, you have to grow and grow, and you'd, you'd imagine like the root of a tree, which then branches and branches and branches to create everything we have now. That's the supposed idea. But in the Cambrian, the period of time, what, uh, 540 million years ago, um, what we see in the fossil record is the sudden appearance, sudden meaning over 10 to 15 million years, so not sudden in terms of our everyday life, but sudden in terms of geological time. We see the sudden appearance of the majority of the different kinds of animals that exist. So, for example, we see the appearance of uh, crustaceans, like crabs or shrimp. We see the appearance of mollusks, so that would be like snails and oysters. We see the appearance of echinoderms, that would be like sand dollars or sea urchins. 
you see the appearance of different kinds of worms, um, lots of different kinds of worms. Um, we even see the beginnings of what we call chordates, meaning animals like us that have the beginnings of a backbone. So you see all this arising, like 15 to 18 different groups of animals, radically different body plans, different ways of making a living, different structures appearing all at once. And that's not the way Darwin's tree is supposed to look. That would be like turning the tree upside down, having all the branches appear at once. Or you could say it's more like a field of grass with all the branches starting at once and then amplifying from there. Um, the thing that struck me, and this is not um, a scientific reason, but it struck me, that it corresponds better to the story of Genesis than it does to um, Darwin's story, that's for sure. That, in a nutshell, is, is where I'd like to go today, to talk a little bit about the problems and the mechanisms of, of evolution. Our guest this hour is Dr. Ann Gager. She's with Discovery Institute. Uh, she has talked a bit about her specific areas of research. We'll be right back with more from her after this. Stay tuned. Latter-day Radio is the originator of this faith-affirming podcast. If you like it or have comments or requests, send us an email at latterdayradio.com. More faith-affirming podcast content from Latter-day Radio coming your way. Stick around. on Latter-day Radio for our last segment of our last hour here on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. We're talking today about intelligent design, uh, God's hand in creation, and uh, uh, problems with neo-Darwinism. Our, our guest today is uh, Dr. Ann Gager from the Discovery Institute. And Ann, before we go too much farther, uh, give us... Uh, Give our listeners an idea of where they can go uh, to find more information like this on your on your websites. Okay, um, discovery uh, website is discovery.org, www.discovery.org. Um, another great place to go is evolutionnews.org. That, uh, that's a a blogging site where we have new articles, new content every day. Um, and um, if they like podcasts, there's a podcast site called ID the Future where there are interviews. It's all one word, idthefuture.org. Um, then there's the YouTube channel for the Discovery Institute. So there are lots and lots of ways to get more information. We have articles, we have books, we have videos. Uh, we try and communicate as much as we can. Sounds to me like when you've visited all these sites, there, there, sh there should be a college degree associated with it. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. I, 
a bachelor's of patience. <laughs> there you go. Well, your website says your website says that you are responsible for communicating the evidence for intelligent design to the wider public. You know, after uh, after Greg and I have a really big lunch, we definitely fit that criteria of a wider public. But somehow, I think they they had something else in mind. But but you're you're a communications person, and and from what you've just described, you're doing your job very well. That's wonderful. I've been thinking about the little yeah. mailman inside my in, inside my body, walking around delivering things, and it, it makes me a little bit worried. What if they take it to the wrong place? Oh, uh, you know, I saw a video the other day. Well, actually, about a month ago. That just, you know, I'm I'm a molecular biologist, a cell biologist. I shouldn't get excited by things as much. But this one video is of a ribosome. Now, I mentioned ribosomes before as a molecular machine that takes the information in DNA and turns it into protein. Well, it's a complicated structure, and they've worked out enough of the details of the structure to be able to put together a molecular animation illustrating how the thing works. People have been studying ribosomes for decades, and now they have enough information to start to illustrate it in action. Well, the ribosome takes in the RNA and then sweeps in the tRNA with one arm and then expels the other tRNA out. So you see this this structure, handing things in and letting things out, handing things in and letting things out. It's really remarkable. Uh, You know, you think of these molecules as static, um, not active things, but actually they're quite active. They're, They're... Hard to put into words. They're they're dynamic in their functions, and where that dynamism comes from is, well, it's not, in my opinion, due to evolution. This is uh, so fascinating. I think I'm going to have to go back to college. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we've turned a lot of engineers onto design too. They they all decide they have to start studying molecular biology. There's a story. Um, Stephen Meyer was in his office working on a book, and there was a, an architect-level computer scientist who'd been collaborating with us. And he came in, and he dumped this big book called Molecular Biology of the Cell, boom, on Steve's desk. And he said, I get the eerie feeling that somebody's been here before. And he also had the... Um, uh, whatever the book is of, of design that all architects, computer designers use, the design patterns that they follow in their program, he finds the same sort of patterns in the DNA, in the organization of the genome. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's really something. Fascinating. So... Let's uh, segue, if we could, during the remaining minutes that we have of our program, to the evidence for uniqueness of human origins. um, That's one of the other areas you've spent vast number of time uh, uh, dealing with. Talk, talk to us about that subject as, as a whole, and then maybe uh, give us a few examples, if you could. Okay, well, I think your listeners will be able to name a bunch of things that we can do that animals can't. Um, first thing that comes to mind is speech. 
they may have heard on nature shows that chimpanzees have been learning to speak. Well, the truth is, chimpanzees can only learn a few hundred words at best, and even when they learn them, they can't use them in the kind of ways that we do. They, they don't ever communicate. They demand, they ask, but they don't say, how are you doing? Or, I like that. How do you, do you like that? They don't communicate. They just say, I want cookie, or give me doll. Um, speech is an important area. We can use speech in incredible ways. Um, think Shakespeare, or a beautiful poem by John Donne, or um, the Declaration of Independence. We use speech for abstract thought. Um, we have concepts, abstract concepts, um, like beauty and truth and goodness. These aren't the kinds of things that can evolve. Um, we have intelligence. Um, that ties back in with abstract thought. We have an ability to think that goes well beyond what's necessary for survival. I like to tell a joke that um, there's no way that astrophysics is necessary for survival or reproduction. In fact, it might be a handicap in some cases. Um, you, we, we have um, um, the ability for um, moral thinking. Um, moral thinking is not something that you would expect to come from um, a Darwinian process where survival is the key, key feature. Social, social settings, um, well, evolutionary biologists will say that social behavior was useful for survival, but um, the kind of, uh, the, the refinement and, uh, and, for example, altruism or cooperation um, that humans exhibit goes well beyond what we see in the animal kingdom. Um, music, poetry, art. Uh, so where did all this come from? Um, we see the beginnings of it uh, back uh, 60,000 years ago in artifacts that we can find. Um, did intelligence start before then? I don't know. Um, my research has been focused on the question of whether we had to come from a population of um, 10,000, which is what um, population geneticists have claimed, that we could never have come from a first pair. We had to come from 10,000 because of population genetics. I, I questioned that uh, because I was asked by a philosopher, how strong is the evidence against Adam and Eve? So I said, I would go look. I had never thought about it. And to, to my surprise, I found that one of the strongest arguments um, in favor of a large population and against the first pair fell apart before my eyes in the scientific literature. So I began to ask the question, is it possible that we came from two? And now there's a group of us working on the question. And several other scientists who addressed it too. And the answer is, yes, it's possible we came from two. Fascinating. 
We are out of time. I feel like we've just scratched the surface. I hope maybe we can have you uh, back again sometime soon. Okay, that would be great. We've been speaking with Dr. Ann Gager from Discovery Institute, and she has just uh, been, been wonderful. We highly recommend that you take a look at Discovery Institute's website. This is Latter-day Radio. Stay tuned. Latter-day Radio is the originator of this faith-affirming podcast. If you like it or have comments or requests, send us an email at latterdayradio.com. We're back here on Latter-day Radio for our last segment of our last hour here on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. We're talking today about intelligent design, God's hand in creation, and uh, uh, problems with neo-Darwinism. Our, our guest today is uh, Dr. Ann Gager from the Discovery Institute. And and before we go too much farther, uh, give us uh, give our listeners an idea of where they can go uh, to find more information like this on your on your websites. Okay. Um, Discovery uh, website is discovery.org, www.discovery.org. Uh, um, another great place to go is evolutionnews.org. That, uh, that's a, a blogging site where we have new articles, new content every day. Um, and um, if they like podcasts, there's a podcast site called ID the Future, where there are interviews. It's all one word, idthefuture.org. Uh, then there's the YouTube channel for the Discovery Institute. So there are lots and lots of ways to get more information. We have articles, we have books, we have videos. Uh, we try and communicate as much as we can. Sounds to me like when you've visited all these sites, there, there, sh- there should be a college degree associated with it. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly a, a, a bachelor's of patience. <laughs> there you go. Well, your website, says, your website says that you are responsible for communicating the evidence for intelligent design to the wider public. You know, after, uh, after Greg and I have a really big lunch, we definitely fit that criteria of a wider public. But somehow I think they, they had something else in mind. But, but you're, you're a communications person, and, and from what you've just described, you're doing your job very well. That's wonderful. I've been thinking about the little yeah. mailman inside my in, inside my body, walking around delivering things, and it, it makes me a little bit worried. What if they take it to the wrong place? Uh, you know, I saw a video the other day. Well, actually, about a month ago. That just, you know, I'm I'm a molecular biologist, a cell biologist. I shouldn't get excited by things as much. But this one video is of a ribosome. Now, I mentioned ribosomes before as a molecular machine that takes the information in DNA and turns it into protein. Well, it's a complicated structure, and they've worked out enough of the details of the structure to be able to put together a molecular animation illustrating how the thing works. People have been studying ribosomes for decades, and now they have enough information to start to illustrate it in action. Well, the ribosome takes in the RNA and sweeps, then sweeps in 
the tRNA with one arm and then expels the other tRNA out. So you see this, this structure, handing things in and letting things out, handing things in and letting things out. It's really remarkable. Uh, you know, you think of these molecules as static, um, not active things, but actually they're quite active. They're, they're hard to put into words. They're the dynamic in their functions and where that dynamism comes from is, well, it, it's not, in my opinion, due to evolution. This is uh, so fascinating. I think I'm going to have to go back to college. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've turned a lot of engineers on to design, too. They, they all decide they have to start studying molecular biology. There's a story. Um, Stephen Meyer was in his office working on a book, and there was a, an architect-level computer scientist who'd been collaborating with us. And he came in, and he dumped big book called Molecular Biology of the Cell, boom, on Steve's desk. And he said, I get the eerie feeling that somebody's been here before. And he also had the, um, uh, whatever the book is of, of design that all architects, computer designers use, the design patterns that they follow in their program, he finds the same sort of patterns in the DNA, in the organization of the genome. Fascinating. So let's uh, segue, if we could, during the remaining minutes that we have of our program, to the evidence for uniqueness of human origins. Um, That's one of the other areas you've spent a vast number of time uh, uh, dealing with. Talk talk to us about that subject as as a whole, and then maybe uh, give us a few examples, if you could. Okay, well, I think your listeners will be able to name a bunch of things that we can do that animals can't. Um, First thing that comes to mind is speech. They may have heard on nature shows that chimpanzees have been learning to speak. Well, the truth is chimpanzees can only learn a few hundred words at best, and even when they learn them, they can't use them in the kind of ways that we do. They, they don't ever communicate. They demand, they ask, but they don't say, how are you doing? Or, I like that. How do you, do you like that? They don't communicate. They just say, I want cookie, or give me doll. Um, speech is an important area. We can use speech in incredible ways. Um, think Shakespeare, or a beautiful poem by John Donne, or um, the Declaration of Independence. We use speech for abstract thought. Um, We have concepts, abstract concepts, um, like beauty and truth and goodness. These aren't the kinds of things that can evolve. Um, We have intelligence. Um, That ties back in with abstract thought. We have an ability to think that goes well beyond what's necessary for survival. I like to tell a joke that um, there's no way that astrophysics is necessary for survival or reproduction. In fact, it might be a handicap in some cases. Um, you, we, 
we have um, um, the ability for um, moral thinking. Um, moral thinking is not something that you would expect to come from um, a Darwinian process where survival is the key key feature. Social social settings. Um, well, evolutionary biologists will say that social behavior was useful for survival, but um, the kind of so, uh, so the the refinement and, uh, and for example, altruism or cooperation um, that humans exhibit goes well beyond what we see in the animal kingdom. Um, music, poetry, art. Uh, so where did all this come from? Um, we see the beginnings of it uh, back uh, 60,000 years ago in artifacts that we can find. Um, did intelligence start before then? don't know. Um, my research has been focused on the question of whether we had to come from a population of um, 10,000, which is what um, population geneticists have claimed, that we could never have come from a first pair. We had to come from 10,000 because of population genetics. I, I question that uh, because I was asked by a philosopher, how strong is the evidence against Adam and Eve? So I said I would go look. I had never thought about it. And to, to my surprise, I found that one of the strongest arguments um, in favor of a large population and against the first pair fell apart before my eyes in the scientific literature. So I began to ask the question, is it possible that we came from two? And now there's a group of us working on the question and several other scientists who've addressed it too. And the answer is, yes, it's possible we came from two fascinating we are out of time i feel like we've just scratched the surface i hope maybe we can have you uh, back again sometime soon okay that would be great we've been speaking with dr ann gager from discovery institute and she has just uh, been, been wonderful we highly recommend that you take a look at discovery institute's website this is latter-day radio stay tuned This podcast has been produced by Latter-day Radio. Visit latterdayradio.com for more information.